Welcome to the Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review. We cover all things national security, military, foreign policy, and history. I'm Joshua Day, your host, and I want to thank you for joining us for the third season, first episode. We have a special guest today. Kier Lieber is director of the Center for Security Studies and Security Studies Program and professor in the School of Foreign Service and Department of Government at Georgetown University. Professor Lieber's research and teaching interests include nuclear weapons, deterrence and strategy, technology and the causes of war, U.S. national security policy, and international relations theory. He is co-author with Daryl Press of Dartmouth College of The Myth of the Nuclear Revolution, Power Politics in the Atomic Age, author of War and the Engineers, The Primacy of Politics Over Technology, and editor of War, Peace, and international political realism. His articles have appeared in leading scholarly and foreign policy publications, including International Security, Security Studies, Foreign Affairs, and the Atlantic Monthly. He has been awarded major fellowships from the Brookings Institution, Carnegie Corporation of New York, Council on Foreign Relations, Earhart Foundation, MacArthur Foundation, and Smith Richardson Foundation. Dr. Lieber received his PhD and MA in political science from the University of Chicago and his BA in political science and international relations from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is also a proud product of the DC public schools. Good morning, Dr. Lieber. How are you doing today? Thanks for coming on the podcast. Fine, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I think uh, we're going to have a good time today. Uh, lots to cover. Uh, you know, being the director of the security studies program at Georgetown, uh, you know, and also a national security professional yourself writing books about, uh, I'll say nuclear war, but that's not it. You can get into more about that. Actually, you know, tell it's us all a about, bit. It's all about peace. Nuclear peace, peace exactly. Peace <laughs> so uh, can you get actually get into a little bit about your background, how you ended up, uh, you know, not just at the security studies program, but why, why nuclear? Because, um, you know, that seems like something of a different age to some of us that are, you know, in the program, I'm just curious. Well, I mean, it's a long path to, you know, how I got to be director, how I came to write a book on nuclear weapons. Neither one of those accomplishments, uh, you know, I would have predicted um, uh, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, or much less at the beginning of my career. Um, but, you know, I went to, I, I'm, a, I'm a product, I'm an academic, you know, product. Um, my parents were both PhDs and my father taught um, at Georgetown for many years, in fact, which is one of the reasons I grew up in Washington, DC. Um, but I went off to the University of Chicago to get a, a PhD in political science. And my mentors there were very keen to um, train us, the graduate students, to not just be kind of academic eggheads and you know, get a job in the ivory tower and, and be uh, divorced from reality out there. What we were driven and uh, uh, to study and to, um, uh, was what was real, real world problems in international politics. At the time when I entered graduate school in 1994, you know, the Cold War had just ended a couple of years before that. Nobody really knew what the international landscape was going to be. So it was a pretty interesting time. Um, but again, all driven by real problems um, and, and to come up with explanations, theories um, that could help explain what was going on in the world. Now, nuclear weapons are one of those things that was, you know, in any graduate program, especially a PhD program in international relations, you're going to get 
um, a lot of exposure to the history of nuclear weapons and the Cold War and all that. It does have this abstract element to it. Thankfully, you know, they haven't been used since 1945, used in anger, in war since 1945. So you might think that this is a perfect example of a topic that has nothing to do with the real world, right? Like this is, you can say anything about nuclear weapons, right? Nobody's, is, is there a test of it anywhere? Uh, you know, you can't talk about nuclear warfare. You can talk about strategy, but, you know, and deterrence, but unless deterrence fails, unless somebody's using nuclear weapons at some point, you know, you can't approach it in a typical way you would with a social science theory. So long story short, um, is that I actually found that, you know, the role of nuclear weapons in international politics was getting increasingly important, even though, again, we're not talking about use of nuclear weapons, but North Korea, potentially Iran, Russia, China, the US, Pakistan, India, you know, all these countries that were in the headlines um, where nuclear proliferation, nuclear strategy, nuclear deterrence were, were in play made me confident I could pick this as a topic to really examine. Um, I came to Georgetown in 2009 and uh, I became director in January of 2017. Um, and I, you know, I felt that I was a core member of this program, core faculty member of this program and wanted to see the program do well. And you know, at a certain stage in your career, even if you're kind of a pure academic and most of your career is spent in the academy, you know, the, the notion of service um, and administration um, uh, is important. And I, I felt like I wanted to give it a crack and see what I could do in, in keeping the SSP on top and, and, uh, and, and humming. Yeah, you know, there's something in there that you said that I think is real important. Uh, being an academic, you know, I use the term nationalist career professional to describe you for a reason. Uh, this is not to, this comment is not to say that uh, the production of knowledge is not valuable, right? Because no one could get a PhD if you didn't have academics exploring the theories to the full extent. Uh, but the point I was going to make is that your comment about having something that is practically, that is, that is practical, that is applicable and being able to teach. I think there's something unique about the way you're able to approach things, even though you, know, you come from, as, as you said, a, a fully academic background. The student populace in, in SSP is a, for lack of a better term, practitioner populace. I mean, there's a spectrum, right? They're not just straight practitioners. You also have policy types. Uh, and I, I think your ability to, to um, you know, translate between the two is a skill I know I'm trying to get and other people in the program. And I think it's a really valuable aspect to your, uh, to being director and then also just setting the culture in the program. Yeah, I mean, look, anybody who's heard me uh, talk, whether it, uh, admitted students day or even orientation or graduation knows that my favorite phrase in the world is uh, the inextricable link between theory and policy. Okay, so I get it that in an MA program in security studies, the individual students, many of whom are, you know, see themselves purely in a policy making analytical uh, world, whereas a student in a PhD program is, you know, envisioning you know, uh, wearing a uh, um, wearing a tweed jacket with you know elbow pads and and sitting in an office smoking a pipe or something talking about theory. But the reality is, in my view, what you're getting in terms of your education should be, and I think at Georgetown it is in particular in Spades, is um, an understanding that these two worlds of theory and policy can't be divorced. Right? I mean, it's it's just wrong to say. Uh, you know, academic theories are, are relevant to the real world. And it's, it's 
just wrong to say that, oh, if I want to understand how to uh, deter Iran from getting nuclear weapons or to um, contain China or to fight terrorism or to address climate change, that you don't need theories because theories are simply explanations for how the world works. And, you know, yes, some of my colleagues have a tendency to couch their arguments in, in, in complicated language and jargon. And, but, you know, policy folks do that too. Um, that's not the issue. We fundamentally are about doing the same thing. It's just a question of whether you're cognizant of it, you're aware of it, you're explicit or implicit about the theories that you have in your head when you make a decision to um, take action in the world. And so what we're trying to do is just train you to think, you students, to think more critically, more coherently about the forces at work in the world, um, which might be more persuasive and therefore which policies are, are, are the best response to the problem that you're trying to address. Yeah, I think the, uh, the phrase I always use is intellectual frameworks, right? Because I have all this experience and then when, I, when you get an education, you get given new ways of thinking about things as you're, as you're kind of talking about. But I can also take all that context I have in the past and slap it against those intellectual frameworks, see what sticks, what doesn't stick, why it did it. And, and I, that intellectual pursuit for me, I think is the, the fulfilling part of it. But it also, um, to, to your point, you need the actual theory itself or the thing to, to chew on and, and you know, put it up against situations, do case studies, see you know, does, do these three factors stick, you know, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, you talk about throwing the evidence against the, the theoretical frameworks, but I mean, it, it works the other way around too, which is like, you know, the beauty of theory is that in, in theory, it's applicable anytime. Right. And if it's not applicable to events as they change, then it's probably not a, as good of a theory as you thought it was. Right. So, you know, you can have a theory of why terrorists, you know, why did, why, why did the terrorists, why did we get attacked on 9-11 or, you know, what motivates terrorism? And you can have five different explanations, right? And in, in the 1980s, one explanation might've been the better fit for the evidence out there. Today, that might be totally different. Um, if there's an explanation that tends to explain the way the world works over and over and over again, regardless of how the facts change, then that's probably a really good theory. And those are the theories that our students are exposed to in their foundational courses in the program. Yes. And it's not always in very long books, which is kind of nice. No, but we do read the, the you know, the pillars, as you will, uh, you know, like Clausewitz and, um, you know, all, all of them. I, I actually was very impressed looking at, uh, I was looking at some of the DOD, you know, Navy reading list, the Commandant's reading list, and seeing how many of our books are actually in those reading lists, um, to your point about things that stand the test of time. The one thing I do think is interesting, and this is a complete aside, is in those reading lists, it's always at the general officer or flat, you know, the, the flag officer level. Um, and I don't think that's always appropriate. I think I, I'm glad I, I've been getting exposed to the type of, uh, you know, thoughts that I've been getting exposed to, you know, when I'm when I'm young compared to other national security professionals. I think that's something that sometimes we make a mistake in. And I think that is something that SSP does a little differently than other, um, you know, professional education or reading programs, especially in, you know, not just DOD, but in other spaces. Yeah, well, look, I mean, um, when it comes to 
theories and explanations, it's a marketplace of ideas. And the way it's supposed to work is that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a poobah, you know, a senior full professor on the verge of retirement from an illustrious career. If your argument stinks, then nobody should be you know, putting much stock in it. Um, new, new faculty members that are doing cutting edge research, you know, it, again, in theory, have just as great of an opportunity to get their ideas out there. Um, and again, if we all respond to uh, good theory, simple theories, powerful theories that are backed up by good evidence, that are couched in, in regular language and not, you know, highfalutin uh, lingo, then, you know, then, they, then they'll rise to the top. I mean, this is one of the frustrations with, um, you know, most major foreign policy disasters over the last, you know, 50 years, you know, uh, we go back even longer than that if we wanted to, they're usually the result of groupthink where there's just one kind of explanation that comes to dominate without alternatives um, being considered with arguments taken are valued because of who's making them, not the content of the of the argument. Um, and, and that, you know, you can find that evidence, that's smoking evidence everywhere when you look at a train wreck in, in, in American foreign policy in particular. Well, and you were talking about theories that stand the test of time. And uh, it made me think of the book that you wrote that came out during the pandemic. Uh, do you mind mentioning uh, the book, the title, Sure. Um, and a little bit about that, because uh, I, I think that <laughs> I think the book kind of does what we're discussing right now. Yeah, yeah. And again, I love it because uh, I, well, I love to talk about it in this sense, because on the one hand, you know, nuclear weapons, international politics seems like such an abstract concept. But the reality is, you know, um, well, first of all, one nuclear weapon could ruin your whole day. And so, you know, you, you are talking about possible events that you know you hope will never happen but if they do happen extremely important look the book is 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 very simple i mean they're the dominant theory in the world of explanations about how nuclear weapons work in international politics is is the theory of the nuclear revolution that nuclear weapons really were a, a game changer they came around they're the best deterrent ever if i have nukes josh you have nukes you're not going to attack me i'm not going to attack you Right. And, 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 and in some ways, depending on how it's couched, you know, kind of the most momentous technological development in, in human history when it comes to, you know, uh, interactions between tribes uh, uh, um, and uh, up to nations. Um, so in a way, there is the idea that nuclear weapons should modify international politics, that international security competition shouldn't be as intense in the presence of nuclear weapons. Right? This is why everybody says the United States and the Soviet Union were crazy for arms racing so much in the Cold War. They were both armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons. What more did they need? Why do we care about what happened in Vietnam? Right? If the Soviet Union took over Vietnam, how would that affect our security? The United States was secure. They're not going to attack us because we'd use nuclear weapons in return, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you should have behavior should be changing. But yet, as you know, we look out at the world and it doesn't look that different you know, than prior decades and centuries. I mean, yes, there's one really important development that we have not had a great power war since 1945, okay? And I don't think it's just a coincidence that nuclear weapons were invented in 1945, right? We've gotten close a few times and people have worried, you know, continue to worry about this a great deal. But the fact of the matter is countries, nuclear armed countries around the world seem to really worry about conflict with other nuclear armed adversaries. And 
intense security competition is alive and well, whether you're talking about the United States and China, whether you're talking about India and Pakistan, and I'm, I'm deliberately mentioning nuclear pairs of countries, right? North Korea and its adversaries, the United States, um, uh, uh, Russia, the United States, Russia, NATO, et cetera. So nuclear weapons have not been this pacifying uh, variable that most people think, and the book explains why that's the case. No, and just for everyone listening, the name of the book, again, was The Myth of the Nuclear Revolution. Uh, yes, thank you for the marketing. You can tell that uh, it's not my strong suit. First of all, <laughs> to go ahead and release a, release a book during the pandemic, uh, although it's done fairly well. Um, and of course, not to, not to, uh, to even mention the title, but The Myth of the Nuclear Re Revolution, Power Politics in the Atomic Age. Um, yeah. No, I, I think that... Uh, Great cover, by the way, too. For, for those of you that have already bought it, it's a beautiful cover, nice hardback. Big cover guy. I like when my books look nice on the shelf. So the cover is important. Yeah, I'll uh, be able to find it among that stack. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's funny because I, I will end up picking up the book someday. You know how it is, maybe over Christmas, but with the amount of reading I have in the program. I, it's a great it's a great stocking stuffer. I'd be happy to give you one for in return in return for doing this podcast. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, no, I but I will say that there seems like there might be some of the questions I have answered in that book of, you know, how do we even talk about a shift in grand strategy when you have uh, to your point about not having, uh, you know, an actual great power war since 1945. Um, you know, we have this shift, but we have nuclear war looming over our heads. And how does that affect our decision making? And to tie that to kind of current, you know, current times, you know, we've uh, drawn completely out of Afghanistan. There's this huge shift, um, even though it was a few years ago that uh, the national defense strategy was saying, you know, we're going to shift to great power competition. Uh, but I don't think people really believed it because we were still deeply involved in Afghanistan and still are in Iraq. Uh what are your kind of thoughts on that and the future of that shift? And then to the question I have of how does nuclear, the potential of nuclear war loom over these decisions as we decide how to turn that grand strategy into military strategy and so on? Yeah, I'll say this from the day, from the first day I taught a large introductory international relations course. Um, this is back in 2000, in the, in late August of 2001, just before 9-11. Uh, uh, you know, I said that I thought the, that the story of the 21st century in international relations was going to be the rise of China and the way that the United States um, uh, and China would, would behave toward each other. Um, I was fairly pessimistic about the future in terms of the fact that I expected uh, security competition to grow and intensify as China grew and intensified, et cetera. So in, in my perspective, of course, two weeks later, we get 9-11 and I have to kind of quickly throw together a lecture or two on terrorism. And uh, fortunately, we had people like Bruce Hoffman who had already been writing about this and, and I could just pull some things off the shelf to help people understand what was going on. But I think that the last 20 years of the US, you know, for lack of a better term, global war on terrorism and its involvement in, in Afghanistan has been a complete debacle and a diversion from what is still the most important um, international security uh, um, development um, of this century, which is China's growth and power and, and um, the apparently intensifying competition between the United States 
in China. So on the one hand, you know, um, the disaster in Afghanistan and the withdrawal from Afghanistan um, uh, was a positive. If you want to look at the, uh, the glass half full, I think it will allow the United States to refocus its efforts and identify the real threats to its security, okay, which did not come from um, within Afghanistan, particularly not after the fall of, of 2001, after our invasion um, uh, of that country. Um, so in a way, you know, I'm trying to look on the bright side and say, now we can refocus on what are critical threats. And if we do that, we're going to see that, you know, containing China, working with China's neighbors to try and make sure that China doesn't behave more aggressively in the area is the most important thing. Now, you asked what role nuclear weapons play in this. Um, if you take the argument in our book, which is that, and my books, by the way, was co-authored with Daryl Press at, at, at Dartmouth College. He gets half the royalties. He should get half the credit, of course. Um, is that, you know, I don't believe that nuclear weapons are this great pacifier in international politics, that they, that they make states feel tremendously secure. Yes, they're a great deterrent, right? Um, but it's a rough path to have nuclear weapons and have an adversary and countries are arms racing and competing over territory and all the rest. When it comes to the US and China, there are many people who think there's um, stability lies ahead in part because of nuclear weapons. Both sides have them. Both sides have a decent amount of nuclear weapons. Won't that act as a, as a break on security competition and potentially conflict? And again, if you, you know, buy the book, read the book, you'll understand why I'm much less uh, sanguine about, about that prospect, that I, that I worry greatly that um, neither nuclear weapons uh, nor China's incorporation into international institutions nor the promulgation of norms about peace and stability are going to do much to, to, to prevent this from becoming a, a particularly intense uh, security competition that could end up in, in military conflict. Yeah, I think one of the, you know, we read a lot about gray zone conflict, conflict below the threshold of war, what happens between shout and shoot. But then in those conversations, it always comes up of, well, but they have nuclear weapons. Like, do we want, what about escalation? And so it'll be interesting to dig into the book because uh, I, I think that sometimes, uh, to your point, uh, this is my, my opinion is they don't cause stability, they cause instability, but the instability is below the, th I think, below the threshold of war. It creates new types of competition. And especially in, a, in, a, in an age when we have new technology where you can have different types of competition that we haven't seen before. Um, but these are all those conversations that are happening. And I'm interested to, like I said, dig into the book and see um, how you frame the problem well, set. And yeah, no, look, I mean, there's, they're just, we're so stuck for those of us that cut our, our teeth in, uh, um, on nuclear weapons in the, in the Cold War, based on the history of the Cold War, we're kind of stuck in this old logic of, you know, these two superpowers armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons. And look, it was all this competition, but it was a stable world. You know, that's, that's less relevant history, I think, than just looking at North Korea today or, or Pakistan today. Both of those countries have nuclear weapons, right? So in a way, maybe they should feel secure and not worry about their adversaries, but they have a different challenge, which is preventing a conventional invasion by their adversaries, okay? North Korea is not worried about US nuclear weapons. You hear me? Iran, I mean, North Korea is not worried about US nuclear weapons. They are worried about US conventional weapons. Okay, and if there's a war on the Korean Peninsula, a military conflict, a conventional conflict, they are going to lose badly, and they know that. And if you're losing badly, and you're 
neck is about to be put on the noose, you know, and you have nuclear weapons, you're going to think seriously about nuclear escalation to prevent that from happening. Again, I'm not saying that North Korea is going to just push the button and, and launch a missile against Los Angeles, but they're going to threaten nuclear use and potentially even use nuclear weapons to prevent a catastrophic defeat before it happens. This is essentially Pakistan's uh, nuclear policy um, toward India because they feel conventionally overmatched. Russia says this is what it's, you know, why it might use nuclear weapons if it's facing a more powerful NATO. And in fact, if you look at the history of the Cold War, the US had this exact same strategy. You know, we feared the Soviets were going to come pouring through the Fulda Gap in Germany uh, and just run roughshod over Western Europe and the NATO alliance. And in response, what do we do? We sprinkled a bunch of nuclear weapons all among our troops in Western Europe and Germany and and we pre-delegated launch authority to, to European commanders. And you know, we wanted nuclear war to happen if they were gonna invade with conventional weapons. So again, long story, but simple lesson here, which is that we can't be stuck in this logic of just like, I have nukes, you have nukes. If you use nukes, I'll respond with nukes. So therefore they cancel each other out and we all you know, live in peace. That just doesn't fit the world. No, and that's a, it's a great point about the and this is where those those gray zone conversations, and I say it that way because uh, uh, I still read lots and lots of scholarship and practitioners, policymakers, academics, and there still isn't a clear definition, but we know it's below the threshold of war. I'm just going to say it that way. Uh, but your Korean Peninsula example is a good example of, no, it actually could escalate. And okay, so where is our line, right? Like it, you know, you have that between shout and shoot, but there's there's markers in there of, you know, when escalation can happen, when it couldn't happen. And, you know, how do we, you know, this new great power competition, like what does that competition look like without provocation for, you know, yeah. look, there, there are many great parallels. I mean, when we talk about cyber, you know, the US government can say whatever it wants that if um, a country like China or North Korea, you know, takes out the power grid on the, uh, uh, um, uh, in the US in some area that will consider that the same as a kinetic, you know, military attack and we will respond accordingly. We can say whatever we want, right? I mean, we trot out lawyers and, and spin doctors and they can, they can say anything, but everybody knows that the likely response is not gonna be the exact same thing as if the Soviets sent, I mean, Soviets, Freudian slip, the Chinese sent a bunch of long range bombers against California and, and, and started dropping bombs against the California power grid. That's not gonna be the same kind of response and we shouldn't pretend, I don't think we should pretend otherwise. That's not to say that we know where the exact answers are. Where are the red lines? What is gonna be the same? But most people accept that argument, but then you say, oh, well, North Korea might use a pop off a nuclear weapon you know, over the Sea of Japan during a conventional conflict. And then, oh no, they would never use a nuclear weapon because they know that America could turn Pyongyang into glass, you know, with an all-out nuclear retaliation against against the North Korean capital, and that that I wouldn't. I mean, if I'm president of the United States, I'm not ordering that. Uh, I'm not going to respond that way. I have to respond in a in a, in a in a in a. I mean, again, I might say that, hoping that you'll get deterrence. But North Koreans are not, you know, are not dumb, and uh, adversaries, when facing real security threats, have to think very seriously about what they would do in different scenarios. And this is why, again, this is why our program is so important because we're gonna produce, we produce the people that go on to analyze these dynamics and come up with policies for how we should respond. Yeah, I was gonna say that, uh, you know, and the national security professionals that we create and climb the ranks, uh, but also just the ones we already have, 
also aren't dumb and they're not going to think, oh, we should immediately escalate. I think one thing we've learned from history is that de-escalation has its value, um, but also that to your point about the cyber, cyber Armageddon or whatever they're calling it, that it won't, that it's, it, it's less, it's less likely of a scenario if you're thinking rationally. I think there's a whole uh, box we could unpack about um, international relations theory, but I wanted to ask you, you know, we just laid out this entire landscape and these problems and, you know, you spoke about or you made a statement about how we want to build that future national security professional. What does that look like in, in your eyes? And, and how do you see the program, the security studies program at Georgetown contributing? Yeah, it all comes back to this idea. What, what, you know, what's the purpose of your training at, at Georgetown Security Studies Program? The purpose is to encourage critical thinking, okay? To consider alternative viewpoints. And when we say viewpoints, I don't just mean like a policy stance. I mean, I don't mean that. I mean, the theory behind your views, the perspectives, the explanations, the intellectual frameworks to use Josh's, your, your, uh, your term, um, the theoretical lenses, whatever you wanna call them, to consider you know, that anything that happens in the world is gonna at least, you know, the first reaction I always have is come up with three different explanations for why that happened, right? If you can't do that, you need to learn more theories because there's at least three explanations for everything out there. One may be the better one, that's fine, but you know, how would you know that before you begin to analyze? So to me, what we're doing is trying to encourage people to learn new theories, new perspectives, run them up against each other, debate, argue, discuss, consider evidence that undermines or supports these theories so that when you get out there in the real world fully, and again, most half of our, you know, we have part-time students, full-time students, we have students who are already in, um, uh, um, uh, uh, already in the US government, for example, in the Pentagon or intelligence agencies, and be able to have those theories on the shelf so that when something comes along, you can explain it. Again, I, I brought up Afghanistan before. I think Afghanistan was a failure because of groupthink, because the US foreign policy establishment has had a, basically a homogenous view of what the threats are out there and the best way that America can, can address these threats. It's been heavily influenced by both liberal internationalists and neoconservative uh, analysts who believe that you know, we can go around the world whopping people upside the head and remaking the world in our own image. You know, If you're a realist like me, you find that to be you know, a baseless and counterproductive way to, to do things. First of all, what are the important threats? Second of all, how do you address those threats? And to not have a debate, the marketplace of idea, ideas failed in the last 20 years in, in the United States, whether it was about Iraq, whether it was about Afghanistan. Um, and again, we need to do better. And I think it starts with academic programs, MA programs like Georgetown Security Studies Program. Yeah, and so for the listeners out there that aren't in the program, because we'll have, we, we have, a listener base that isn't in the program, maybe doesn't even have a master's degree, or maybe already has one and wants another one. Um, not to bucket people into specific buckets, but what would you say to kind of the different crowds, the, the students fresh out of undergrad, the mid-career professionals, or I'll say early career professionals, three to eight years, mid-career being, you know, maybe 10 to 15 or even 20, because uh, I actually think that those type of uh, students add a lot of value. What would you say to uh, those potential applicants out there? Yeah, it's exactly, it's the combination of all these different groups of folks, military folks, folks right out of BABS, young professionals, 
um, international students. I mean, what makes us special is to have all of these folks in the same classroom, okay? And I guarantee, I know what happens, you know, the, the, the recent graduates, uh, you know, they've had four years where they're already, you know, been well-trained, for example, at Georgetown and critical thinking and all the rest, but they get into the first, you know, class session in SSP and the MA program and they're terrified. Oh boy, I got, you know, uh, um, my colleague Josh over here, who's, you know, served in the military, he's got real world experience. I'm gonna shut up because he knows so much more than I do. And we all know the military guys are sitting there saying, oh crap, military guys and gals, forgive me, are sitting there saying, oh crap, I've been out of the classroom, you know, or not in a, in a traditional classroom like this. Um, these, these, these recent BAs are gonna, you know, know a lot more than me. And what happens is everybody eventually figures out that they have something to contribute, or again, hopefully figures out that they have something to contribute. Some of it is based on academic learning. Some of it is based on professional experience. But again, it's about a diversity of experiences and viewpoints, um, uh, which makes the classroom more amenable to generating different theories and explanations, which is what, again, we need to be able to navigate the real world of policy problems moving forward. And I think this is a great opportunity to say uh, one of the biggest things that I think is valuable in the classroom, especially in an environment where people are different or from different stages of life, is going into each engagement, giving the other person the benefit of the doubt that they're coming from a good place, having some empathy, uh, and instead of trying to be right, seeking understanding. So I definitely think that might be a challenge for people coming straight out of undergrad, where it's very much debating your ideas and trying to maybe be right. And same thing for professionals. Like I come from this you know, I come from this military branch and this is how we do things. This is the way things must be done kind of to what you were talking about in your book, right. Of, of just theories and, and, and the way or Afghanistan and group think uh, I, would you say that that's something you really hope the students engage in is yeah. empathetic and, and seeking understanding rather yeah. than, right? Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, I, you know, you have, you have to be comfortable with disagreement, you know, understanding is one thing i can understand what you're trying to say and still think you're totally wrong right and hopefully i can explain why i think you're wrong but nobody should be offended in the classroom when told that their that their argument is flawed right that we have to get to the point where we're comfortable doing that that is the definition of critical thinking and by the way you everyone should turn you know turn the mirror um, look, look right in the mirror and say, well, what is it about my argument? Is it, is it as good as I think it is? Where are the flaws? Let me try and come up with counter arguments, right? To my own views. And if I can't come up with good counter arguments, then I haven't thought enough about it. So I guess I'm both, I want both sides of the same point. I want debate, conflict in the classroom. You know, I want people to be passionate about what they're arguing about because we're talking about really important topics. You know, should we have stayed in Afghanistan? Should we counter China? Should we try and engage China? How do we tackle climate change? What do we do about terrorism? You know, is it still a threat or is it not a threat? People have very strong views about that. And we have to create an environment where they can debate that. But then, as you said, come to some kind of understanding. Okay, well, there are all alternative perspectives. I can have confidence in my views, but I need to be able to, to be empathetic and understand where other people are coming from too. This is not, you know, we don't all have to, at the end of the day, sit around the fire holding hands. But we have to understand, you know, who we're engaging with um, um, uh, in the classroom, much less understand our, our adversaries in, in, the, in, in international politics. Yeah, I think the, the seeking understanding aspect, and, and to your point, you don't have to agree, but critical thinking, you should, you should be able, just like you said, 
you should give three explanations for, uh, you know, any given thing. I should also be able to give, you know, a three point summation of what you were trying to say, even yeah, if I a re told, a re totally a rebuttal. Just... Yeah, you should be able to give the rebuttal to your own argument. If you can't right. do that, it's not just a debating thing, you know, model UN. I didn't do any of that stuff. I just learned to argue from a young age and it took me a long time to be able to understand that, uh, you know, your arguments are going to be stronger. You're going to get closer to something that we might call the truth if you're able to criticize your own views. And that's what, again, we're trying to encourage in the classroom. And people do need to feel comfortable with that. It's very difficult, though. We're aware people are sensitive. Um, uh, you know, there, um, there are all kinds of things that make this uh, a lot more difficult than it sounds. But we're trying. And that's what, you know, that's our fundamental purpose in, in the academy. So, uh, you know, kind of the last question to wrap this up for, for Georgetown's security studies program, what are kind of the current goals and vision? I mean, staying on top is one thing, right? Uh, but, you know, what, what are you and the program doing to set the stage for the future? For this future we're describing of how to educate uh, critical thinking uh, national security professionals. Yeah, I mean, you know, really what you're trying to do is navigate this world where you want to be able to respond to student demands. And that's about, I need the training that's going to help me get a job, um, that I need courses in the areas that will be useful in my career, but are that also in the areas that are important in the real world. We've got faculty with research agendas that are working on topics that um, we as a program want them to offer courses in those areas that they deem important. And then we also have to take a step back every semester and look at you know, the course offerings that we have, which we have many, and figure out where are the holes, what do we need to offer, what faculty do we have teaching them, can we get better faculty, um, uh, how, do we, how do we keep the good faculty that we have. And so, you know, I feel like a lot of the job of a director and the leadership team um, um, is, to, is to try and respond to all these desires and wishes and offer a great curriculum. Um, and again, it's just, it's something that um, is, is even harder than, than it sounds. Um, uh, and that to me has been the kind of main motivating force. We also, of course, face all kinds of issues about culture and atmosphere. Is this an inclusive you know, program to people? Uh, you know, are we as diverse as we should be? I think it's incredibly important moving forward and not just in its own sake. Although if you're discriminated against, that's a problem, right? We have to address that. But my main motivation is to have a diversity of perspectives, right? And among people of different backgrounds, because why? Because that's going to result in a better consideration of theories in the classroom, which is going to result in better policy in the real world, which is going to result in a better, you know, um, uh, steps to improve U.S. national security and improve U.S. national security and um, stability in international security. I mean, that's 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 the end goal. And so you start with with diversity and pluralism, and you end up with better policies. Well, this was an amazing talk. I, I think there's a lot to unpack, not just for students that listen to the podcast, but also for the national security professionals that are out there, or I always like to joke as my parents uh, who are out there <laughs> listening right. to this. Uh, there's a lot of thoughts that, to your point earlier about, you were talking about accessibility. Uh, I think that's one of the things that I, I like about this podcast. I bring on different guests and there's a level of accessibility where you don't necessarily have to be in the program. Uh, or even have a college degree to understand or care about what we're talking about, because th this stuff is very important. Uh, and I just wanted to thank you for coming on the podcast today. This was a lot of fun. 
Yeah, I, and let me thank you. I mean, we're not, um, as a community, we're not back to our pre-pandemic. Uh, we're not firing on all cylinders in that sense, but we're working on it, we're getting there. And the efforts of you and, and, and really everybody on the GSSR uh, staff to help kind of build an intellectual community and a social community um, is, is really important. So I encourage you to, to, to keep doing these podcasts, um, and get a diverse uh, uh, group of people um, uh, and um, I just want to thank you. Well, you're welcome. And to our listeners out there, this is the first episode of season three. Uh, really appreciate you listening. Please subscribe across the various platforms. And we welcome feedback from listeners. Feel free to email questions. Uh, we can reach out to guests that we have on or other people within the program if you have a specific question. And I want to thank you all for listening. <laughs>